Please turn with me to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we'll be reading the, the passage for the sermon. Uh, feel free to get out your Bibles or your devices uh, and follow along. All right, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Please join me as we pray together. God, you rule over heaven and earth. Your domain has no end. You rule over us with love and compassion. Your word is truth and your word is pure and we can find joy and life in following your commandments. God, we just confess that our words are not always pure and that we can be careless in the things that we say. Thank you that we can put our faith in what you say in scriptures and find our hope in your words. Would you teach us to use our words to bless others? Would you use Jake's words this morning to show us how to control our pride and tame our tongues? Lord, we pray that Jake encounters you this morning as he preaches uh, and that he would, we would be hearers of your word and respond in confession, repentance, and in trust and obedience to you. God, we lift up the children of Mercy House, that you would soften their hearts as they hear your word in their classes. We pray you would open their hearts to receive the good news of the gospel and that they would not depart from it. We thank you for the teachers and the volunteers and Mercy House kids classes and pray that you fill them with wisdom and love for the children. Uh, we ask you to raise up more teachers and volunteers who are passionate and committed to loving and teaching the children. And finally, God, we, we pray for our broken world. Uh, we pray for those who are sick and infected by this disease to be healed and that you would sustain bodies and spirits we pray that you would provide for those who are poor and vulnerable, 
and that you would give us strength to stand with them. We pray that people who would turn to you in their fear and anxiety and find peace and trust in you. We pray that these times would inspire Christians in every neighborhood to pray, to give, to love, to serve, and to proclaim your gospel. Teach us to be your faithful people in this time of global crisis. Help us to follow in Jesus' footsteps, who laid down his life for the sake of love. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I just turned it on. Okay. Um, oh, there we are. Uh, we're dismissing kids, grades one through two, out this way. So if you are in that group, you can head on out. There they go. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jake Blackwood. I'm an elder here at Mercy House, and I'm glad to be able to speak to you uh, this morning as we reflect on this passage that we just read from James 3. So, uh, if you're just tuning in to this sermon series, uh, we've been spending some time in the book of James, and what we've seen in this book is that his primary concern is encouraging and admonishing followers of the risen Christ to act like it, to grow and maturity into the faith that they claim, striving for perfection even. And this passage is an example of a particular uh, a particularly pivotal area of our lives that we must continue to grow in maturity as those who follow Christ. Now, James is a unique book uh, in the biblical canon. Uh, it doesn't always fit neatly into the typical framework of any one genre. It kind of defies categorization. Uh, it, sometimes there's topics that are picked up and then they're dropped, and then they're picked up later again, and it can be a little bit jarring when you're reading through it, yet despite this, it's an extremely quotable uh, and memorable book. And it's also a great example of how Scripture doesn't really fit into a nice box all the time, and we're blessed by that fact. But because this doesn't always follow a nice systematic argument like we see uh, in one of Paul's letters or a narrative like we see in the Gospels or Acts, it's sometimes difficult to interpret. And so I want to provide us a little bit of an outline, a bit of structure uh, that uh, we're going to use, and then I'm going to have to kind of abandon it because James doesn't really follow it. But I think it'll be helpful for us as we kind of organize our thoughts about this passage. So first of all, uh, I want to give you a theme for the passage and then four key points that are going to come out of uh, the sermon today. So the theme here, right, is James is reflecting on the difficult, uh, often difficult necessity for those in Christ to tame the tongue as we strive for perfection and sanctification. So the necessity for those of us in Christ to tame the tongue as we strive for perfection and sanctification. But some of the key points that are going to come out of this sermon is the following, the tongue or our speech, how we speak to one another has uh, an outsized influence on the course of our lives. It has this outsized influence on our 
lives. That's the first point. The second point, then, is going to be that controlling it, controlling the tongue, our speech, is difficult. So it has this huge influence, yet it is difficult to control. And then the third point is going to be, yet despite all of that, we're going to have to endeavor to control our speech if we're to mature and flourish in our Christian lives as we try to practice the true religion that James is about in this book. And the final point I'll make is that this is especially true for those who would lead the church, although it is going to apply to the whole body. All right, so that's our theme and our four points. And because James follows this nonlinear pattern, we're going to start with the fourth point because that's where he starts. All right, so the first part in verses one through two, we're going to see uh, a warning for teachers and then a kind of thematic statement, that theme that we talked about. All right, so if we read in verses one through two, the following. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So what do we make of this warning about teaching? So the first thing I want to note here is I don't think that this is the theme. This isn't like, here's my theme, statement, or my theme sentence, and then it's going to follow from there. No, I don't think this is primarily about teachers. It's not addressed to teachers. It's addressed to the brothers, right, or brothers and sisters. It's, it's likely the we who are stumbling in many ways. Yet at the same time, it's not just purely an illustration, right? It's not some kind of folksy way of getting to a point, right? That would be to give too little attention to the frank warning that we have here for a vital part of church life. The taming of the tongue is particularly important for church leaders. That the teacher will be judged with greater strictness is then connected. We have this word for, right? Uh, this for connects us to stumbling, and in particular stumbling uh, in how we talk, right, in, how, in our speech, right? So the warning here is about teachers, uh, in particular, being liable to stumbling in their speech. And while I think this can broadly apply as a lesson uh, uh, for anyone who does any kind of teaching in the church, it does seem like James is mostly directing this at the role of teacher, right, which we would often uh, uh, connect with the role of elder in most contexts, I, 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 don't want to, I don't think that that's actually critical for understanding the rest of the text, but you know, I think it is helpful for understanding what greater condemnation or greater strictness could mean here. Right? But keep in mind, even though he's really talking about church leaders, I think it applies to you as much as when you teach your kids at night right? or when you lead a small group. Okay? So the idea of being communicated here is not uh, a different standard. Right? This greater strictness uh, is really about a greater exposure to judgment or potential for incurring judgment based on the nature of the work of teachers. So simply put, teachers have more opportunity to cause trouble with speech because they speak more. When we preach, reprove, and exhort, we open ourselves up to the possibility of a misstep. We might lazily pass off received wisdom as godly, we might import our own assumptions and biases into the text. We might be tempted 
to step outside of the bounds of our own knowledge when we're faced with a problem or an issue that we're not really prepared to face. What I would add to this, it's not just the quantity of words we say, but it, it also means something different, right? When someone says something from a place of authority, it carries a different meaning than usual. I, when a, in one of the, f- the first month of me being an elder, um, I gave an opinion in, the grou- in, a, in a group setting one time, and, uh, you know, I don't think it was anything necessarily that controversial or even wrong, but uh, when I said it, someone responded, you know, Jake, when you say that, it makes me want to punch you in the face. <laughs> Which was kind, of, it was a kind of a joke, but at the same time, there was some truth there, and I think what was, what was being communicated to me that, you know, uh, the words I said carried a different weight because I was an elder. I don't think if I had said it a couple months before, it would have made as much of, a, made as much of an impact. Right? But it meant something different, coming from that place of authority. Words that, when spoken by a typical member, might be acceptable or within the bounds of acceptable speech could turn into a stumbling block when spoken by a teacher or elder or leader. And this is a struggle for me, something that I'm continuing to learn. And beyond that, we, we, we see that the picture here is really reflective of something else that we see in Scripture. We see, to, uh, to everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That's from Luke 12, 48. So we see that to whom much is given, much will be required. Well, what's been given to teachers? Well, in 2 Timothy, Paul uh, admonishes Timothy to protect the good deposit. The message of the gospel is what he means by that deposit. So for Timothy, Paul is saying as a teacher, the gospel, it's both a gift of grace but it's a responsibility that he must guard. And for overseers, in general, we read in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So teachers, uh, the, the role of teacher has been entrusted with the gospel, as in the caring of souls has been entrusted to overseers, and we will be held to account for it. In particular, the influence of our words are vital. And that's why James is using teachers as an example about the effects of words. Now, some per- perspective here, I think, is in order, because that might be like a bit scary for you if you're ever considering being a leader in some way. I know it's scary for me, uh, and I don't take it lightly at all. Um, so I want to provide a little bit of broader context. So first, the the audience here is first century Hebrew Christians for whom this role of teacher or rabbi uh, would have been like a highly prestigious and desirable position in the Jewish community. It would have come with honor and respect and maybe some perks, right? And so James is in part trying to discourage those who are seeking their own gain through through the status as a teacher. So for us today, the same may be true, like a pastor or elder title is perhaps, you know, maybe it's not as prestigious, but it carries in our culture some weight, right? Some sense of importance. It might even carry some status for some. But let me be the first to tell you, don't seek to be a pastor for those things. Don't seek to lead a small group for the prestige it gives you. Don't seek to teach because you think 
you will generally feel respected. But at the same time, we know from 1 Timothy 3, 1, the following, that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a worthwhile, noble task. Someone needs to pursue it. Someone should aspire to it. I'm going to step outside the bounds of my own personal knowledge and say it's kind of like giving birth. For those of us who have not done so, it's unimaginable. Sometimes people try and like make it relatable, but it's always like, well, can you imagine? No, I can't. That, what you're saying is not helpful to me. I can't imagine it. We understand, though, as those who haven't experienced it, that it's an incredibly difficult experience. And if you were to ask a mother if it was painful, they would say yes, very. If you were to ask a mother if it was worth it, they would also say absolutely. To teach others the word of God, not just for elders, it's, it's to open yourself up to scrutiny, to make yourself vulnerable. It can expose areas of sensitivity and even sin that can result in lots of pain. And because of that, it's not for everybody, but it is worthwhile and a noble task. So I don't want you to be discouraged or even excused from leading or teaching, but I do want you to be fully aware of the cost. And James wants you to be aware of that. It's not a cushy posting or a seat of honor or a sign of God's special favor to teach from his word. It is hard, hazardous, high-stakes work but it is good work to be done joyfully. Pursue it, but count the cost. And I want to take this moment to say that, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about talking today, right? James has a lot to say about what we say, right? That's the focus, but it doesn't absolve us as Christians from also listening responsibly. We need to hear each other, listening with grace, eager to interpret each other generously, slow to take offense. So while there is a great responsibility and burden on teachers to speak well, we must also listen to them with grace, knowing that we all stumble in many ways. It doesn't mean we can't address those who stumble in their speech, including and especially leaders, but it does mean we should do so with grace and humility. And so this is not some sort of ornamental warning, right? It's not just a folksy illustration, but it's also not the main point. It's a highly relevant example of a broader principle that's in a remark that's aimed at the whole congregation. The point then is laid out for us in verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, recall from Tommy's sermon a couple weeks ago that the initial verses of this letter, uh, James is encouraging the congregation to strive for maturity, for growth, for perfection even. In verse 1-4 of this book, we see the following. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's sort of the goal, the, this, this idea of perfection, of completion, of ultimate sanctification. It's what we're striving for. And James is letting us know now that speech is of the utmost importance. 
in achieving this goal. The taming of the tongue is important in achieving this goal. And really, we've seen this thesis statement already before in James. Again, this is like the nonlinear nature of James. Like our theme statement really is in chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and we read the following. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in summary, it's a necessity that we bridle, that we control our speech in order to achieve the kind of maturity, steadfastness, and pure true religion that James has in view in this letter. And that should come as no surprise to us that words are so central uh, if we know our Bibles. It's the, with words that God, the Creator, speaks the world into existence. James, or Jesus calms the storms and heals the sick with a word. He himself is called the Word. And the word gospel is the good news. It's the good word spoken for us. So yes, words are very important. And we understand this, that our words, our speech, our tongue are important, but why is the man who bridles his tongue then perfect? Well, it's because the tongue is so instrumental. It's so crucial in determining the whole course of our lives. In verses 3 through 5, we read the following. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. If these illustrations don't make sense to you, just know that a bit is a small piece of metal that's connected to the reins of a horse. And with it, a rider can guide the horse. It directs the horse. And a rudder is a very small piece of wood or metal that by manipulating it, the whole ship can be turned by the pilot. And so these illustrations are just suggesting that the, you know, it's important to control your tongue. It's, it's almost saying that it determines the outcome, the whole outcome of your life. The point here is that if you can control your tongue, you can control yourself your actions. And for James, that's, that's the whole game, right? And to be sure, this isn't saying that if you can just keep your mouth shut, you will be holy, right? It's certainly true that you can sin without speaking. I'm not challenging you like, hey, just try to sin without speaking. No, I'm not saying that. We know from Scripture that Jesus taught that inward sin, like hate or lust, is sin nonetheless, we know from 1 Samuel 16, 7 that ultimately God knows and cares about the heart. Uh, we read, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And even in this text, right, like we know that a rudder isn't like very useful without a captain or a pilot steering it, right? A, a bit and a bridle does no good for the horse if no one's on the horse to ride it and tell it where to go. But the point that's being driven home here is that the tongue, our speech, it's a focal point. It's a crucial threshold where our internal psychological self hits the surface. It's the interface between our internal state and the external world. It's where the rubber of our hearts meets the road. We read in Luke 6.45 that out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. So it's clear then that ground zero for demonstrating uh, our inner selves, that true change, that new nature, that saving faith, it's the words that we speak and the manner in which we say them. That it determines the course of our actions is, is in powerful ways, as stated here, and, and often destructive ways. And this is going to be the key point that James then shifts to uh, when he, he talks about the tongue not being under control, and that it's unbelievably destructive when it's not under control. At the end of verse 5, we see this shift. Just like, uh, just like bits and rudders, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, up to this point, a rudder could be good or bad. Bits are kind of a neutral thing, too. But once the word boast, notwithstanding the song we sang about boasting in Jesus, boast typically has a bit of a negative connotation to it. Right? Another analogy is then invoked that talks about a spark causing a fire. And this isn't some campfire. It's not a controlled fire. It's a destructive forest fire. And, you know, I know in the West they're dealing with this right now. I've never witnessed one myself, but my understanding is that they are terrifyingly fast and destructive. And James is then really focusing on the downside here, saying it's not so much uh, your t- that your tongue can lead you to a better life, right? That it's a bit steering you to greener pastures or a rudder that's steering you to still waters, but it's a bit that's leading you off a cliff, Right? It's a rudder that's steering you into the rocks. Right? It's a spark that's causing an inferno that encompasses your whole life. And that's what we see in verse 6, which continues to meditate on this thought, where it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. This verse is a little bit uh, hard to translate in some ways, in particular this idea of world of unrighteousness. I kind of want to read that as a world of hurt, or like a heap of hurt, right? But it's probably best to read it as the whole world of sinfulness uh, is contained within the tongue. You see something similar in the Gospels where Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18 through 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Again, here we see the mouth, right, is where the heart, it's proceeding through the mouth from the heart here, right? But out of the mouth then is coming this whole list of of sin, right? And that's that's a whole, that list is a whole world of unrighteousness, right? That's the downside of the idea that we speak from the abundance of the heart. That's true when it's full of sinfulness. And these effects are not limited, or, but they're pervasive and they stain the entire body. We go back to that, that passage from James chapter 1 where it says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
We defile our religion, our faith. We stain ourselves when we speak in ways that are out of step with the standard set by Christ. There's no, well, he's a good guy if we just ignore what he says, right? Or she's an absolute loose cannon when she opens her mouth, but what a great Christian example. Our speech, then, is setting the course of all of our actions. It sets on fire the entire course of our lives. That's what the Greek means here, right? it's, It's talking about a cyclical pattern, right? It's talking about this pattern of seasons, life events, ups and downs, life, death, Winter, spring, summer, or fall, right? It's a different James, by the way. All of it is set on fire by our sinful words. Every part. How true is that for us? If we reflect on this, right? How often has the joy of a happy event, maybe a graduation, or a wedding, or a birthday, been turned to ashes by one uncharitable or biting comment, maybe by a relative or a friend, or maybe even a parent? How often has a date night turned from sweet to sour due to one mistimed or misplaced remark by the one you love? Has the warmth of summer turned cold or the darkness of winter closed in because of the silence of your friends? Has the meeting among believers been set alight due to the words of another Christian? I mean, that whole saying of like sticks and stones, right? That words can't hurt. It's so far off base, right? Basically, all of ancient wisdom knew this. Jesus knew this well. James knows it. And you probably know it too. For many of us, great trauma and pain is wrapped up in words that have been spoken to us. And the same is true for words I've spoken. What arson have I committed in my short time on this earth? As I wrote this sermon, I was thinking about like how little I remember good things I've said. But boy, can I remember the dumb and hurtful things I've said. Like, I can't really remember a time where I was like, man, really nailed that one-liner, right? But I can recall lots of arrogant or biting or sarcastic or even just careless and sensitive things that I've said. And let's remember, by the way, James is writing in the first century when it was a luxury to be able to write something down. (laughs) No email, no phones, no social media, He's suggesting even then, when at most, like the typical person, like at at best, you could speak to like a few hundred people or maybe like a thousand people in the right amphitheater, right? He's suggesting in that time that loose speech is like walking around a dry forest flicking matches. If that was true then, then we've got flamethrowers now, right? With telecommunication and especially social media where A child can post something and instantly be heard by thousands, if not millions. This destructive potential is immense. Even a careless word on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, it's like napalm. It's fueling a never-ending fire of insults and bad faith and snark. 
That's not to say that words can't have a positive effect. We know that a well-placed word can benefit someone else. I've benefited at times from social media, right? And there truly are more opportunities now to learn and interact with people you never would have met before, right? And that can be really enlightening and helpful. And the lack of words can be bad. We need to speak into one another's lives. But James is very concerned here about the destructive nature of words. There's a saying from uh, a well-known soccer coach that a good coach can make a team 10% better, but a bad coach can make the same team 30% worse. And that's kind of the sense that I'm getting from James here. Maybe the percentages are a bit off, but that there's an asymmetry. You can, do a, uh, you can do good with your speech. You can do good with your speech, but you can do a whole world of bad. So I'm not telling you to quit social media I have a feeling that if we told James, hey, there's going to be this site that allows you to write anything, right? And basically everyone in the world will be able to see it. I, th I think we'd lose James. I don't think he'd be able to handle it, right? Like, I mean, I don't think that that would just be so mind-blowing to him. And I think it's all the more reason we need to be careful. And beyond this, we see that speech is subject to the demonic, Right? Most commenters, commenters think that this, uh, this phrase, set on fire by hell, is a reference to the devil. It's not just indwelling sin nature, but it's also a tool to be used by Satan to help him steal, kill, and destroy, to let it all burn. On the whole, this seems to paint this picture of our fallen nature, right? And in particular, the role played by the tongue. Without Christ, we are serial arsonists spreading flame whenever we speak, subject to the influence of the demonic, and as we will see in the following verses, we are incapable of bringing it under control. Verses 7 through 8 read the following, For every kind of beast and bird, or reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. No human being can tame the tongue, it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And this is the third point. It's difficult, even impossible, to tame the tongue. Reflecting on the order of creation here, we see that James is saying that God's created us to be in control of nature, all of nature. Beasts and birds, yes, but also ourselves. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering about uh, uh, what it means to follow Christ, this is kind of where we start. We say that God created us for good to enjoy us and for us to enjoy him, to give us responsibility and joy in caring for his creation. But all, beginning with the first man, have sinned and fallen short. And so nature, our influence over it, our interactions with each other and with God, they've all been broken by sin. And while to some degree humans have been able to maintain some of their dominion over the created order over other created beings since the fall, James is saying that no such claim can be made over the tongue, our speech. It can't be done. And we see this as it, because it is inevitably evil, full of deadly poison. As Paul quotes in Romans 3, 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Both Paul, I think Paul here and I think James is referring really to the general state of the world. 
human nature since the fall. It's inherently sinful. And much of that sin manifests itself in the way that we speak. And we can't control it. But guess what James is going to then tell us to do? Nonetheless, Christian, he is going to say you must control it. He's going to ask for the impossible. And if you're wondering how we get there from here, I'm going to have some words to say about that. But I want to follow along with the text here. As he shifts from this general description of the ill effects of the tongue and the impossibility of controlling it to focusing on the church itself. In verses 9 through 10, we read, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Here we see in the church itself, destructive speech patterns are at play. We're not naturally immune. In fact, we see James placing the highest form of speech, the blessing of God, the Lord and Father, side by side with not just like a salty word or a bit of gossip, but the actual cursing of another human being who carries God's image. To be clear here, this is cursing. It's it's damning another person. It's asking God to remove any possible blessing from them, to cut them off. In essence, it's it's invoking the name of God against his own creation, one that is made in his image. And while it's true that those who do not recognize Jesus by his own teaching as the way, the truth, and the life are cut off and cast out, that's not our decision to make. In doing so, we set ourselves in God's place as judge. So, so I think that this is an example of two extreme forms of speech. The seemingly religious, defiled by the impure presumption of cursing others. It's the ultimate example of two-faced, duplicitous talk and hypocrisy. And James condemns this kind of speech and says it has no place in the body of believers as he speaks to his brothers, my brothers. And then he then ends this passage with two examples. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Again, maybe this is, these concepts are a little bit unrelatable, but especially in the arid Middle East, a spring was a source of life. Any water you needed to drink, to cook, to wash, had to be drawn from a well or a stream or a spring. It was a source of life. If one day it stops producing life-giving, clean, and essential fresh water and starts pouring out undrinkable, corrosive, and useless salt water, you would be in trouble. You would not depend on such a spring. It's absurd to even think about. It's not even really possible for such a spring to exist. It would be useless if it did. Imagine if you woke up and turned on the shower and salt water came out. Right? Or you, you <laughs> turned on your faucet and a bunch of salt water came out. And all the stores didn't have water. They were out of bottled drinks except for salt water. Such a reality would be bizarre. And not just bizarre, you'd have some real logistical issues to figure out. Like, what am I going to drink? And likewise, it's absurd to think of a fig tree producing olives or a figs on a grapevine. 
I'm trying to translate to the Western Massachusetts context, it's absurd to think about getting maple syrup out of an apple tree or apples out of a corn stalk. I've lived here for a while. I, can, I get it. Sure. Someone's going to tell me that actually you can do that, but I don't think, it, I don't think so. In Matthew 7, 16, we see something similar, that you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So as we seek to apply this passage, Mercy House, unlike a tree, right? Most trees don't have choices. We have a choice, right? Proverbs 10, 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. James is calling his brothers and sisters in the church to be one or the other. A fresh spring that produces sweet and life-giving speech or one whose tongue is a world of unrighteousness. It can be both. Now, to be sure, we all stumble in many ways. As Garrett mentioned last week, though, we still have a responsibility to strive forward. And so for you, Christian, seeking to grow in maturity and holiness, I think this is an area we need to make a priority. And practically, this may mean we need to speak less, for example, or modify our speech. There's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs about, uh, that uh, seeks to tell people to speak less. Uh, one, my favorite is uh, Proverbs 18.6 that says, A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. <laughs> But maybe more helpfully, I think more gen- and more generally, Proverbs 10, 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Now, on the other hand, I think we can probably speak too little, too. I think more often than not, controlling the tongue would probably mean fewer words, but control does not mean silence, especially when motivated by fear. We know that Paul proclaimed the gospel, preaching despite being persecuted and tortured and imprisoned because he was not ashamed of the gospel. So let's not forget that we're to be salt and light, a seasoning and illuminating to the world. We're not to lose our saltiness or our brightness. People are not always going to like that. That's not really based on what kind of reaction we get. And furthermore, personal consequences should not be our primary motivation when we decide whether to speak or not or what to say. And so what should we say then? What shouldn't we say? Well, on the negative side, the Bible's full of wisdom and warnings about various kinds of speech. I tried to start to, like, categorize them, but, like, that'd be a whole other sermon. And I think the bottom line is I really can't give you a list of all the things you can and can't say, right? I don't think you want me to give you a list of naughty words and a set of, of approved jokes, right? We don't have the time, and to be honest, such a list does not exist. I mean, like, literally asking God to curse someone or taking the Lord's name in vain, all right, so... That seems obvious, but so much of the destructive power of our words lies in gray areas, right? Was that joke just edgy, right? Or funny because it's true? Or did it pass into unnecessarily crass and insulting words? Am I being prudent in my choice of words, or am I being deliberately misleading? 
Am I just sharing information or has this turned to gossip? These are questions that I can't answer for you. I mean, we have to exercise some degree of judgment. And sometimes the appropriateness of speech is going to depend on the context, on our audience. It might not just be what you say, but how you say it. And there are, but there are so many ways that we can grow in this area. And rather than tell you the ways that I think you should try to grow, I would simply encourage you, Mercy House, this week as an exercise. Gather some resources on what the Bible has to say about inappropriate speech and examine yourself along those lines. Ask your accountability partner, your family group, your friend, your spouse, how do I measure up to the biblical standard? How can I get better? Am I seeing growth? If so, praise God, right? But I firmly believe this is an area where we will never be fully sanctified until Jesus returns and brings the work to completion. So press on with confidence that God will accomplish it. And on the positive side, I would say, in terms of what we should say, first and foremost, share the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Between making disciples and teaching and proclaiming the triune God, there is a whole lot of talking to be done. Furthermore, I would say read, pray, and speak the word. We can spend so much of our time filling it with speech from others through television or YouTube or streams or podcasts. And I'm not telling you to cut all that out, but I think if that's all you listen to, it will more than likely conform you to it, including how you speak. So be sure to read and purposefully pray and speak the words of Scripture. Write it on your heart. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What's more worthy of praise than Scripture? And if you meditate on it, out of the abundance of your heart, you will speak. And finally, I'll say we should speak to each other as brothers and sisters in ways that will lead us to continued maturity. Ephesians 4:15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, if you're like me and you read this passage, you might wonder, okay, well, if he's going to tell us that it's impossible and then say, do it anyway, how do we get there from here? And James, to be fair, really isn't about the how do I exactly become capable of controlling my tongue. It's, what, it's debatable whether or not he hints at it in the text. This idea of like no human being can control the tongue could, be, could suggest that he's saying, well, maybe with God it's possible, but that's debatable. So, in a related text, in, in Matthew 20, Jesus talks to his disciples about how it is difficult to enter the, for the rich to enter the kingdom. And hearing this, the disciples seem to perceive that it might not just mean that it's difficult for them, but it might be difficult for everyone. And so they say, who then can be saved? They seem to realize it's not achievable for the rich. It might not be achievable for them either. And Jesus doesn't deny this. 
And we read that he responds, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So the first point I want to make here is that salvation, being justified, made right with God, as Garrett pointed out last week, it is not possible on our own. We were created by God and we fell into sin and we need to be saved. And God is the one who saves. We read in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And the basis of this salvation then is God, in his love for us, out of the abundance of his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, to live blamelessly and yet die in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. And for those that trust in Christ, his death and resurrection, in turn and follow him, we will also be saved and join him in resurrection in the kingdom. And then this impossible task of restoring our sinful nature, of making us holy, of sanctifying our actions, and yes, our speech, that's also accomplished in Christ. We read in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our continued growth and maturity is, is similarly aided and empowered by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So just like the impossibility of salvation, the impossible task of taming the tongue and the body can be accomplished in Christ. So when we come to the table of the Lord's Supper each week, we're reminded of the work Christ has done and how we're being refined and transformed in our words even. We're reminded of the words the Lord Jesus spoke on the night when he was betrayed, when he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup. This, this cup is the co- new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray that God encourages us as we encourage each other, speaking truth in love. Dear Heavenly Father, you spoke the world into existence. You speak and nature submits itself to your will. And you have declared with your mouth that we are righteous based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ when we trust in you. We thank you that, you've, that what seemed impossible is now possible. That we've been saved and that you are continuing the good work you started. We pray that you will refine our minds and our hearts so that what we say will pour out of a heart of pure faith, helping us to bridle our tongues, to speak to each other with grace and love building each other up, to speak truthfully but humbly as we grow into the body and proclaim your gospel among the nations. Amen.